Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I'm Federica Cherubini, Head of Leadership Development at the Institute. This is a special series of our podcast and it's dedicated to the Digital News Report 2022. Over seven episodes, we are diving into the most comprehensive piece of research on news consumption around the world. In this episode of the series, we are joined by lead author of the Digital News Report, Nick Newman, and director of the Reuters Institute and co-author of the report, Rasmus Nielsen. We will discuss some of the big headlines from the report, including level of trust, news avoidance, polarization, and more. Nick, Rasmus, welcome to the podcast. Very good to be here. Thanks, Federica. Nick, over the past years, we haven't been short of big news stories. The pandemic, of course, the invasion of Ukraine, now the inflation and rising cost of living. To varying extents, each of them are having an impact on many people's daily lives. With stories like this as a backdrop, what has the survey found about the extent to which people are interested in and engaging with the news? Well, we know that these kind of you know, really seismic stories stimulate interest in news and have led to surges in consumption, at least in the short term. But if we take the sort of slightly longer term view, our data is, is, is showing that a significant proportion are actually not engaging uh, in any of the major news sources, including social media, uh, on a weekly basis, so up to around sort of 15% in the United States, uh, also in Japan. And that has grown from just a few percent when we started doing the survey uh, in 2012. So an increasing proportion who, if you like, seem to be disengaging from news. Uh, it's not everywhere, but uh, certainly in, in a number of sort of uh, richer Western countries. But we also find um, a sort of larger group of people who are engaging with the news, but also selectively avoiding certain kinds of stories, uh, particularly difficult and depressing ones, uh, or, or perhaps you know, shut off the news at particular times of day. Uh, and we've been tracking this since about 2017. And as just a uh, you know, couple of examples, that has doubled, uh, that percentage, that proportion has doubled in the UK, it's doubled in Brazil. You know, around half the sample in each of those countries now say they often or actively are avoiding news. If we look specifically at the conflict in Ukraine, for example, there is a lot of talk of um, interesting starting to fade at the moment. Have you look at this in the survey? Um, I, I should add that our main survey, so across 46 countries, was conducted um, just before the Ukraine uh, invasion, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, happened, so just a couple of weeks before. But we did do uh, subsequent polling in, in five countries, so the UK, US, Poland, Germany and Brazil, about a month after the war began. And, and what we found was, if anything, uh, selective news avoidance had increased, uh, particularly in some of the countries closest to the fighting, so Poland, Germany, for example. Uh, and what I think what we're sort of seeing is, is um, you know, there's some people sort of super engaged, consuming more news, wanting to follow every twist and turn on the one hand, but then you have others who are sort of really turning away. And, and uh, you know, obviously the longer the conflict goes on, um, you know, the harder it is for the media to sustain that interest. You mentioned that um, some people are turning away from some news. It is difficult or depressing, but what are the main reasons that people are selectively avoiding the news? Yes, I mean, clearly the, the sort of um, 
the, dep the depressing nature of the news uh, is, is a key factor. So um, across all markets, 36%, so more than a third of avoiders say the news has a negative effect on their mood and younger people are more likely to cite that as a reason. Um, four in 10, 43% say there's too much coverage of uh, COVID-19, uh, too much politics. The sense that much of the mainstream media news coverage is, is repetitive or maybe unresolved or people uh, feel powerless, I guess, in, in the face of this, these sort of these these kind of stories. And then there's also, uh, you know, similar proportions say say the news, you know, just can't be trusted. It's 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 uh, it's it's biased. And and I think just in general, these findings will be challenging for the very challenging for the news industry because subjects that journalists really care about and consider most important, and put a lot of effort into covering, you know, political crises, international conflicts global pandemics, these seem to be precisely the stories that are turning some people uh, away from news. And I think the challenge is, you know, how do you make these stories accessible? How do you make them relevant? And how do you give people a sort of more of a sense of agency, I guess? Rasmus, um, last year, um, Digital News Report found that trust in news was up um, worldwide, um, as audiences turn to trusted sources of news to stay informed about COVID-19. Another year into the pandemic, are news audiences as trustful of journalism? So the headline figure is a little bit down from last year. Uh, this year, across the 46 markets covered, we find that 42% say they trust most news most of the time. In almost half of the markets and countries that we cover, trust is significantly down from last year. So the trust that was um, earned uh, and, and built during the pandemic where people turned to credible news organizations for important and useful information on how to live their lives, how to protect themselves and their loved ones, um, what the implications might be for their job security um, and for the future of their country. Some of that trust has eroded, uh, not all of it, not everywhere, but some of that trust has, uh, has eroded in, in many of the countries that we look at. Which types of news outlets have the highest level of trust uh, among news users? You've looked specifically at public service media, for example, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important dimension of this discussion that um, it is, I think, important to understand the sort of general level of trust and people's overall perception of news as an institution in society. But I think at the same time, it's also important to recognize that most people are very discerning media users and have quite fine-grained opinions about uh, individual brands, quite uh, detailed sort of judgments. Um, and in that sense, even people who may have sort of only moderate levels of trust in news overall often have some individual brands that they trust. Um, and I think we can see, you know, with some variation, also some patterns in what the brands are that tend to do better when it comes to brand level trust. Um, these are often brands that are widely used and thus familiar to lots of people. They are brands that people have relied on for years uh, that are part of their daily routines that people around them make use of uh, and thus have sort of a reputation in the community. They're also often brands that aim to be in the sort of British argot, duly impartial. Um, you know, critics of this form of journalism might dismiss it as sort of false balance or, or sort of, uh, you know, centrist um, pro-establishment coverage. But I think it's important to recognize that the brands that are most highly and widely trusted are often uh, those that are uh, relatively impartial or strive to be relatively impartial. Um, in many countries in Western Europe, that's public service media. 
uh, genuine independent public service media, um, ARD in Germany, uh, the BBC in the UK, the Nordic broadcasters uh, of a similar uh, type. Um, it's also, I think, important to recognize that in many countries, commercial broadcasters do very well uh, in terms of individual uh, brand level trust. Uh, France Television uh, in France, uh, um, sorry, sorry, t um, TV France in, in France, um, uh, ITV here in the UK, uh, TV2 in Denmark, uh, and, and others. And again, I think the basic uh, building blocks of that trust are very similar. It's familiarity and a commitment to some form of, sort of due impartiality. Um, so sometimes it's public service media, but not always. And it's also, I think, important to recognize that in countries where people have good reasons to wonder about the independence of media organizations that call themselves public service and may suspect that they are in fact state broadcasters, or at least beholden to the ruling party or the parliamentary majority, uh, and are thus sort of, uh, at least in part, organs of influence uh, more than they are independent uh, uh, news organizations. Trust in, uh, in what purports to be public service media can be quite low. Looking at different countries, are there any countries where trust in, in the media is a particular problem? Um, you know, we cover uh, countries that together account for more than half of the world's population. So there's a lot of variation and a very complex data set here. Um, I think one I will single out uh, because it's a country uh, uh, that provides a lens through which many people across the globe often think about their own media environment uh, is the United States. And the reason I single it out is twofold. One is that the United States is an outlier in our data set. It's the country uh, in our uh, sample of countries that has the lowest level of trust overall, just 26%, uh, just a little over half of the average across 46 markets. Um, so it's, it's a clear outlier with very low levels of trust. The other reason I single it out is that it's quite peculiar. Um, and in, in that sense, in addition to being an outlier, I would say that our research would sort of caution against interpreting the experience of, uh, of journalism and news media and other societies through an American lens. The United States today is a um, very politically polarized uh, society, uh, more so than many of the other uh, societies that we cover in our research. And the way in which uh, the news media have been made a sort of a political football by sustained attacks, in particular from the political right, but also sometimes a few voices on the political left, is much more pronounced in the United States. And the partisan differences in trust and news are very, very different from most other markets in the United States. You know, people on the left, 39% say they trust most news most of the time, not so different from the average across the 46 markets that we look at in the report. But amongst people on the right, it's just 14% who say they, they feel they can trust most news most of the time. This is an extremely pronounced partisan difference. But it's really important to recognize that that's not the way in which this plays out in every society across the world. Um, in other cases, take France, uh, lack of trust in the news uh, is less about ideological political divides and more about the split between, uh, crudely put, the haves and the have-nots, um, people who are sort of part of a successful uh, metropolitan, urban, uh, uh, upwardly mobile uh, part of society, and people who feel left behind, uh, often in rural areas uh, with lower levels of formal education, lower levels of income. And there are other parts of the world where lack of trust is closely related to people's 
uh, perception um, that the news media uh, are subject to undue influence from political actors uh, or commercial interests. Nick, <clears throat> uh, subscription and revenue sources is another big theme um, in the report. Uh, many news outlets are increasing, uh, increasingly relying on reader revenue um, to stay afloat. Um, and however, the report reveals that the number of people who pay for online news has remained static at 17%. Would you put this down to people having less spare cash, due to inflation, or choosing to cut back on their subscription, or is the market just reaching maturity? I think it's worth just putting a bit of context in here so I mean, over the last few years uh, some publishers especially you know big national titles have have done very well indeed by asking uh, people to pay for that content whether that's via subscription or membership or donation uh, and many more people uh, signed up during uh, during covid um, that sort of sense that uh, media was really valuable and worth paying for um, but i think we are reaching a slightly different stage now for a couple of reasons. So firstly, you know, many people who are sufficiently interested in news have already signed up. So, so growth is going to be more difficult. Uh, and then I think secondly, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the cost of living squeeze is likely to get people to look again at all their ongoing commitments, uh, including media subscriptions. And by that, I mean, you know, everything from, from Netflix to Spotify uh, to news. And, and I should also add, you know, our polling was in January. So that was kind of... Um, you know, prices were going up, but but the before the energy crisis really hit people's wallets, and but even then we found a significant minority who who said that they would be cancelling non-essential subscriptions or, or certainly looking at them again and, and citing uh, the squeeze on household budgets. So I think definitely going to be a factor this year. And uh, I mean, this broad picture of subscription remaining um, flat. Um, are there any signs within the data for optimism on subscriber rates? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a mixed picture. So, I mean, what, what we find is subscriptions actually substantially up in countries like Germany, which maybe have been a bit slower to, um, to, to sort of ask people to pay. So up five percentage points to 14 percent. Uh, now paying, we see, see a similar rise in, in, in Australia, um, where you have a relatively small number of publishers uh, sort of acting together over the last few years to, to try and persuade consumers to, uh, to pay, and that, that's clearly been successful. And then uh, some of the early movers like Norway, 41% paying, you know, that they've had huge success over the last few years, very, very significant proportion of the population who are paying for some kind of online news, including local news. Uh, and, and, and the US as well, you know, relatively static, but coming from a high base, you know, it's had a lot of growth over the last few years. But I think the other really interesting thing is, um, is the growing number of, um, uh, is that, it, sorry, the other interesting change over the last few years is um, more people seem to be interested in taking out multiple subscriptions. So in the US, and actually in Australia as well, um, uh, around half now take out two or more. And I think that is, that's driven by the growing number of, of subscription offers, if you'd like, uh, including uh, lower price ones. So you had, for example, the Financial Times offering a cheaper product of just a small number of curated news stories. Uh, you also have uh, in, in a product called FT Edit, uh, lower price point. You also have individual journalists offering paid news, paid uh, uh, newsletters or paid podcasts. 
uh, typically again at a cheaper price point. So I think you know lots of interesting changes on the supply side, uh, but obviously there is going to be a limit to how many individual new subscriptions any one person is prepared to take out, particularly at this time. You mentioned before um, other online media um, subscription like Netflix. Um, how does news uh, subscription perform when compared to those other online media um, subscri uh, subscriptions and the number of people who are prepared, prepared to pay um, for more than one type of each? Right, yeah, so this year we looked in a bit more detail at how many different media subscriptions people have. Um, people who have news subscriptions typically also have a couple of TV and film ones, uh, services like Netflix, Amazon Prime. Uh, they're also often paying for a premium music subscription like Spotify. They might subscribe to TV sports. Um, interestingly, audiobooks and podcasts is, is, is relatively high as well. And typically at the bottom of the list, you, you, have, you have news in terms of the percentages, probably, you know, for all the reasons we talked about earlier. So, you know, crudely put, people are prepared to pay for, for entertainment and diversion or more prepared to pay for that than for a service that might you know, bring your mood down um, or, or upset you. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the age profile is also different, which is interesting. So typically people who subscribe to online streamers and music tend to be a bit younger. Uh, people who subscribe to news on the whole tend to be a bit older. So in the UK, for example, I think 92% of all subscribers to news publishers are over the age of 30. So, so that's another huge challenge for the subscription publishers is, you know, not only to find the right proposition, but also to find the right pricing to attract that next generation. To remain on, on, on this point, um, I read in the report that the average age of digital news subscriber is almost 50. Um, it doesn't seem to bode well for the future of news. Um, apart from being less likely overall to pay for online news, how are younger people engaging with the news? Right. I mean, one of the things that we, we do in this year's report is uh, focus more on um, the behaviours and attitudes of younger people. And we also challenge the notion that all young people behave in the same way. There's a huge amount of variety, of course, when it comes to news. Um, uh, and what we find in our data, and also we did some qualitative research on this, is that these uh, younger social natives, so these are you know under 25s who, who've grown up with social media, have very different expectations around news, often different definitions of news. Uh, they have, uh, they use different formats, they expect different tones of voices, and they also have a much weaker connection with traditional news brands. So they're less likely to go directly to a website and app, for example, much more likely to access news via a third party, such as search or social media. So in other words, this group is not, is not just different, but it's also more different than people of the same age were in the past. And I, and I think this, you know, this will be increasingly challenging uh, to publishers as this cohort and the next one comes through in the way in which, you know, content is created and also content is distributed. Rasmus, every year the News Report looks at what access points are people choosing to get their news online. What does the report say this year about the main gateways to digital news? Have we seen changes um, from previous years? I mean, overall, we have tracked now for some years how most people with internet access access online news in many different ways. Um, they go direct, they rely on social, they rely on search, they rely on aggregators, emails, any combination of these things. 
And then we asked the follow-up question uh, where we asked people, you know, of the different ways in which they access news online, what's the main way in which they access news? And for some time we've tracked there the gradual move from a world dominated by direct discovery where people went directly to news publishers for their news to a world characterized by more distributed discovery where people rely on intermediaries, social media, search, aggregators and the like as their main way to access news. Um, and I think in a way this year has been a bit of a tipping point in the sense that this is the first year where we have a single form uh, of sort of platform intermediation uh, uh, come out ahead of direct access. This year, 23% say that going directly to a news site or app is their main way of getting news online, but 28% uh, identify social media. And it was the first time we've had sort of a clear, significant uh, gap where a single uh, kind of platform intermediary is more widely used as the main way of accessing online news than uh, going direct. It's important, however, to recognize that there are some very significant cross-market differences here, um, different parts of the world. Uh, are, are very different specifically when it comes to this, not generally so much in terms of overall platform use. <clears throat> Search engines are widely used across the world. Social media are widely used across the world. There is sort of limited variation in that really. But when it comes to how central they are for how people get news online, we have uh, still a significant number of countries, mostly uh, in the Nordic countries and Western Europe, where going direct is still the most important way, you know, half in the UK, uh, more than half in Finland and Norway. And then uh, a larger number of markets across the world where social is much more dominant than it is on average, you know, Thailand, the Philippines, Kenya are all countries where a majority of our respondents identify social as their main way of getting news online. Um, and, and also other configurations. There are you know, countries in Asia Pacific, Japan and South Korea springs to mind where portals, uh, Naver, uh, Daum, um, Yahoo Japan and messaging applications and not only WhatsApp, also Line for example, are much, much more important than they are in Western Europe uh, and North America. So the overall picture I think is one in which people have embraced platforms in many parts of the world, they've been much more central to how people discover news, but really, really significant differences from country to country, and still importantly, a number of countries in which publishers have been able to build really strong direct connections with much of the public. If you look more closely at social media um, as a news source, Facebook is still uh, important, but newer social networks um, are rising. Why is that? I mean, I think uh, Nick hit on this point earlier, which is that um, we are seeing a generation come of age now um, for whom uh, things that people like me and, and those older than me might have thought of as quote unquote new media are old media, right? I mean, Facebook for, for many is a place where you sort of maintain a, a, the bare necessities of showing your family that you're still alive. Uh, while you actually rely on TikTok or Snapchat um, or Instagram for things that are more proximate and closer to your own interests and your own sort of community of peers. So what we are seeing is a world in which uh, the long established platforms, Facebook and YouTube are very important, very widely used also for news. But amongst the 18 to 24 year olds who've grown up with social media, um, Facebook is less and less central, uh, only about half um, say they've used it in the past week for any purpose in our sample, whereas Instagram um, and TikTok and WhatsApp are becoming more and more important. So it's really driven here, I think, by a combination of new entrants, some of them owned by the same companies, but some of them not, 
in the sort of platform market combined with a younger generation with different preferences, different habits, different communities uh, that they tap into as they use media, including social media. Nick, let's focus a bit more on, on TikTok, um, whose profile has increased in the past um, several months, also due to users posting videos related to the war in Ukraine. Um, where in the world is TikTok proving most popular? Um, well, it, I mean, it, it increasingly, it, we, we see TikTok being used in um, outside the US and UK. So, so it's, we've seen this pattern in many cases with WhatsApp and other social networks that have emerged. And quite often the first emerging behavior is actually not in the countries um, where, where, they, where they're, 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 they're made. So yeah, Kenya and South Africa, so in Africa, in parts of Asia, Thailand, for example, um, you have around a fifth of the population who say that they now using TikTok for news and uh, something like four in 10 of our samples say that they're using it for any purpose. So these are really quite significant numbers driven by younger people. And of course, many of those countries have a younger populations. So that would be part of the story. Uh, and I think as, as uh, I mean, I think the change this year, because we've been tracking this for a few years, is that um, people are talking much more about TikTok as a place to see news. And that's partly, you know, driven by the narrative over Ukraine, but it's also politicians increasingly taking notice as they see the audiences that they want are there. So it's been, you know, the Colombian election, just to take one example, you have a, a candidate there. Um, one of the candidates uh, is a self-styled king of TikTok. Um, uh, and he's sort of posted a sort of series of eccentric videos including one of him riding an electric scooter, uh, which some people say really helped him engage and appear much more sort of modern by embracing some of these uh, new new platforms. But we shouldn't over-exaggerate this. You know, what we found in our research that some people say it's great, it's really addictive, I like it for news, but we also found a lot of young people who said that um, that they're not convinced. They say that, you know, it, it's just not the right format and they don't trust anything they see on TikTok. It's just not professional. So I think it's, you know, it, this is an emerging space. Thanks, Nick. Um, Rasmus, each year um, the report tracks levels of concern around misinformation and the type of misinformation they are most exposed to. Um, what subjects do people say they come across the most um, regarding misinformation? Have we moved on from the anti-vax and fake COVID cures? I mean, I think overall, it's important again to recognize that we document very widespread public concern about um, whether the news that people come across online is real or fake. Uh, over half of our respondents say that they worry about uh, identifying the difference between what's real and fake on the internet when it comes to news. Um, and in particular, those who use social media as a source of news, which, as, as we've noted throughout, is a growing uh, part of the population in many parts of the world, are more worried um, than people who don't use social media, sort of suggesting how central uh, social media are to this cluster of problems, uh, including Facebook, including YouTube, uh, but also some of the newer entrants in the market. When it comes to the types of misinformation uh, that people say that they see, um, you know, public health and, and COVID-19 still loom very large um, and then followed closely in, in many parts of the world by politics. And of course, the two things are often intertwined, as we've seen in many countries across the world, the prominent politicians have spread false and misleading stories about the pandemic or have directly attacked public health authorities, tried to undermine the validity of official statistics, uh, undercounted, systematically undercounted death tolls and the like. 
Um, so it's still public health that looms large across the market that we cover, uh, but it is uh, also about politics and often quite tightly intertwined with how elite political actors are spreading false and misleading information for their own purposes. Divisive political moments might create a sense that we live in a time of increased political polarization. Is that true? Have audiences become more polarized over time? Well, um, when we look at news use specifically, um, and if we measure polarization as the degree to which people sort themselves into like-minded communities that use the same media, so crudely put, those on the left using media of one sort, those on the right using media of another sort, with very little overlap and very little uh, in terms of mixed or diverse uh, audiences. Um, if we measure um, polarization when it comes to news media use this way, then I think it's really important to recognize that we find uh, no evidence really of substantial changes in polarization since 2016, when we last looked more closely at this. Um, and I, I think this is uh, really quite an important finding in terms of being in the sort of, uh, um, in the spirit of that famous Sherlock Holmes story, a dog that didn't bark. Uh, it's, it's very clear that there are some countries that are very polarized. There are some countries that are growing more polarized. I mentioned the United States as a very clear example of this, but it's also, I think, important to recognize that sometimes these countries are outliers and we can't always understand the experience in other countries through the lens um, of those very particular and often peculiar cases. And we shouldn't confuse the very real phenomena of very heated arguments on Twitter uh, or other relatively um, uh, not that widely used social media with the general public's engagement with news uh, and media. So what we find uh, more broadly uh, is that uh, news media audience polarization is generally quite low because most news outlets, in particular those that are more popular, attract mixed and centrist audiences. Um, and we don't really see very much of a change since 2016. Uh, I think the reason it's really important to recognize this null finding, to use the academic jargon for it, is that um, I sometimes fear that um, our concern with uh, problems that are very real and identified uh, in the United States and that are very keenly felt by journalists who are active on Twitter, for example, can stand in the way of understanding the scale and scope of these problems and also sometimes distract from um, less sort of visibly an attention grabbing problem such as growth in news inequality and the fact that a significant part of the public as Nick said from the outset uh, are selectively avoiding news and that some people are turning their backs on news uh, altogether and these things are much less in your face much less public um, and I think sometimes overlooked when we focus on polarization even though it may not have changed as much as journalists often seem to think. We'll look deeper at some of these issues in future episodes um, of the podcast, but to conclude this overview of the main findings, um, some of the things that stayed with me the most are the weakening connection between much of the public and journalism, coupled with um, losing some ground on, on trust, um, some groups actively avoiding the news. And if we add that younger people are not necessarily subscribing in large numbers and are not going directly to news website and apps, that makes quite a serious picture for news organization to be looking at. Are there any lessons, um, this is both for, for Nick and Rasmus, um, 
any lessons that you took from looking at this year's data that could offer a guidance for news media on what to focus on? Any examples of someone um, really trying to re-engage um, readers with news? Nick? I mean, I think it's it's very hard to generalize because there are so many different kinds of media companies and, uh, you know, each media company will want to look at, at the different issues. Uh, you know, some will be trying to engage younger people, some will be trying to build subscriptions. So, so there's, there's a lot of different um, uh, challenges here, but also there is there is a lot of innovation. And I think, you know, one of the big questions is the extent to which media companies try and build these sort of walled gardens and get people to come to them in a more traditional way or the extent to which uh, as some media organizations are they really are trying to engage using some of the new approaches um, you know trying to really embrace some of the change around more diverse genders um, and also you know new formats and new tones of voice and, and obviously the risk there's a risk there because there's a risk that authority and trust might be damaged if you compress news into a TikTok video or, or chase attention too much but I think you know a clear shift in that direction is is, is necessary. Um, you know, our data does show that that many people are disconnecting or turning off important stories, and and so that making making news stories more accessible, making them more relevant, I I, I think is 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 the the sort of key focus. Rasmus, any lessons from the data? Yeah, I think there are really two things, big things that we need to hold in our minds at the same time. Um, the first is the bad news for the news, uh, which is that the social contract between much of journalism and much of the public is demonstrably fraying. Um, many people are paying less attention uh, to the news. Many people are less trusting of the news. Uh, many people are less convinced that news is valuable and relevant for them and addressing real issues that they care about in their lives and are on that basis increasingly indifferent to the news, unwilling to pay attention, unwilling to pay um, and not really particularly interested in, in engaging with it. That is a tremendous challenge. Uh, the connection with the public is the foundation on which journalism builds as a profession, as an industry, um, and certainly also in terms of the legitimacy of, of, of institutions such as public service media. Uh, that's the bad news for the news. At the same time, I also think that we should really recognize that journalists and news media um, are sort of two and a half decade into the most intense disruption that we've seen in generations and the most intense competition for attention that's ever existed in human history um, and are, you know, in some cases, uh, demonstrably successful at connecting with people, uh, you know, doing forms of journalism that some people really value are not willing to pay attention to, to benefit from, sometimes to pay for as well or support through public funding. Um, and we couldn't take that for granted and shan't take that for granted. I think we need to recognize that success as well as the enormity of the challenge that it is if journalism becomes uh, a profession oriented towards serving the few. Uh, people like me, affluent, uh, highly educated, very interested, a minority uh, rather than the many, uh, the public at large. Nick and Rasmus, um, thank you so much for joining us um, for our podcast today. Thanks, Federica. Thanks very much, Federica. Our guests today were Nick Newman, lead author of Digital News Report, and Rasmus Nielsen, co-author of the report and director of the Reuters Institute. 
Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Digital News Report 2022 podcast series. We'll take a deeper look at some of the issues we talk about today, as well as other key themes of the report, like how people access and think about climate coverage, or which journalists people pay most attention to and why. So look out for more episodes coming soon on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Meanwhile, if you can wait and want to read the report in full, you can find it online at digitalnewsreport.org slash 2022. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Luis was Future of Journalism, a podcast by the Reuters Institute. I'm Federica Cherubini. We'll be back soon.